So I have a, a question I'd like for us to consider this morning, and, and I, I want you to answer it to yourself, but I want you to be honest. And here's the question. Have you ever had the bottom drop out of your life and you wondered where was God when you needed him? Has that ever happened? Before you answer too quickly, let me share some uh, insights from a few great men of the Old Testament. Listen to the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all of this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Those don't sound like uh, the words of someone who was uh, completely satisfied with God, do they? Moses was disappointed. And then we have the words of Asaph in Psalm 77. They convey an even deeper disappointment. He wrote, I cry out to God, yes, I shout, oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. Or take the words of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. It starts out by saying this uh, change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather die than live if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Now, just in case, uh, I think there to say that Jonah was upset with God, that'd be kind of an understatement, wouldn't it? <laughs> Jonah was flat out angry, angry to the point where he would just as soon that God took his life than leave him that upset. And this morning, our uh, lectionary for the day is going to give us an up-close, first-hand, personal look at two more men, two traveling companions, who are taking uh, leaden steps away from the scene of what on the surface appeared to them to be the collapse of their highest aspirations uh, and the end, basically, of all their hopes and dreams. And so our lectionary this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Luke writes, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. Uh, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Uh, but our leading priests and religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early in the morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. 
And they'd seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women said. To see this, this was the day after the resurrection. Cleopas uh, and his friend, who we, we don't know his name, went through Jerusalem's western gate heading toward Emmaus. And even a casual observer that day could tell from their body language that their conversation was intense as they passed by. And they're discussing what had happened over the, the last few days, how Jesus, their rabbi, the one they believed was the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Savior, the promised one, sent by God to deliver his people from the wrath of their sins, had been taken by the religious leaders and put through a mock trial. And then shuttled off to Pilate, the governor, who they coerced into executing Jesus by putting him to death on the cross. And the implication is clear from the text there that they were discussing the scriptures that they knew from the temple and from the synagogues about a coming Savior. And they were comparing it to their knowledge of Jesus and what had happened to him. And in their minds, things just weren't adding up. And as they were walking and, and talking, the stranger walks up alongside them. And the stranger greets them, and, and he falls into step with them. And it, he interrupts them, really, is what he does. And he says, hey, fellas, uh, what are you talking about? The two men stop in their tracks. They look at each other. They look at Jesus, who they've been prevented from recognizing. And he asks them why they're so depressed. What are they looking so sad about? And the two men give this interloper kind of a sideways glance like we would as they're trying to size up what kind of fella has joined their company. And they're dumbfounded because the execution of the popular prophet from Nazareth was just about the only thing that people were talking about in Jerusalem as folks packed up all of their things for the trip home from the Passover celebration. Uh, and so partly in frustration and uh, with some degree of sarcasm, the men respond by asking this stranger if he were the only visitor to Jerusalem that didn't know what had happened over the weekend. He basically wanted to know if, if Jesus had been living under a rock. Right? The delightful irony being that the one to whom the question was asked was the only one that really, truly, intimately did know what had happened. And, and now, uh, this is the part of the story where I always wondered to myself, why didn't Jesus... Uh, just show them his nail-scarred hands uh, or, or his spear-gouged side or, or the thorn scrapes on his forehead. Hey, why didn't he just say, hey, guys, it's me. I'm back. I'm here. Cheer up. Uh, I mean, he did that for the disciples in the upper room, right? Uh, he did that for the, the women. But that wasn't God's plan in this encounter. And that actually, actually is very good news for you and me, but we'll get to that. We'll come to that later, so you have to pay attention. So now as these three men uh, stand there on the dusty Emmaus road looking at each other, our Lord does one of the things that our Lord does best, which is answer a question with another question. So he asked Cleopas and his traveling companion, he says, what things? What things happen? Now the text doesn't exactly say which one spoke first, but I bet you they both talked at once. And the whole story just spilled out. The whole story of their hopes and their, their dreams and their plans that they had pinned to this rabbi Jesus. And they told about the powerful miracles he had performed. 
and the depths of his teaching and, and how everything he had done seemed to have fit everything they were expecting from the anointed one that God had promised to send to reclaim the throne of David, to restore the glory to Israel. But then last Friday came, and that's where the wheels came off. Uh, that's where uh, everything changed. That's where their plans seemed to uh, come apart at the seams and the bottom dropped out of their life and their world went dark, literally and figuratively. Uh, and they didn't understand what had happened. Like, where was God when the cross was being erected? Uh, where was God when his prophet was murdered? Where was God when the cultural elite and the foreign conquerors continued to beat the people down anytime they felt like it? And more importantly, and maybe most importantly, where was God when they needed him? When Cleopas needed him? Because everything they had been waiting and longing and hoping for had all been sealed up in the cold stone of a garden tomb. But then... Then, and, and they almost hesitated to add it as they're telling their story. Then on that third day, some women they knew, uh, women who had followed and, and cared for their master uh, the way they had done, had gone to anoint his body and, and to see its proper and dignified interment, but found instead that it was gone, that he was gone. Uh, but what did it mean? I mean, where, where was his body? Who could have taken it? Really, who would want it? And how would they ever figure out all the answers when there were just way too many questions? But there had to be an answer, right? There's got to be. And aren't those really the same issues that we struggle with today? Uh, because truthfully, 21st century America is very much like 1st century Israel. Uh, we hear people say, well, uh, if the body was gone, then someone stole it <coughs> or moved it. Or that Jesus had just uh, swooned on the cross uh, in the torture that he suffered and that uh, the coolness of the tomb had somehow revived him and made him strong enough to break out. Uh, I mean, okay, maybe the, the body was gone, but what does that really mean? Because, you know, it's quite a leap from missing body to mankind's Messiah. It's, uh, it's rather a stretch to say that a vacant tomb just automatically equals a victorious resurrection, or that a rolled back stone means that our Savior rose again. Uh, and those things are all valid arguments on the surface, but in all honesty, uh, they betray and demonstrate either a naive view of authentic Christianity or worse, a stubborn unwillingness to examine the evidence for our faith. And so these men now Having spilled their sad story, Cleopas and his friends start out walking again. They've told their tale. Maybe they got five paces or so until the stranger on the road said the very last thing they could have expected from this man out of nowhere. And Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. <coughs> Cleopas looked over at the stranger kind of confused and that stranger looked right back into his eyes and said wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering his glory 
And you see, this, this story, this, uh, this is not baby Jesus meek and mild, is it? Uh, this is not Jesus being gently exasperated and saying, oh, you, you little foolish ones, come on now. Right? He's angry. He's angry at them for not understanding, for not understanding things which ought to have been clear as professed believers in the Word and in the power of God. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther made a lot of this in his writings. He says, uh, Jesus scolded them for being stupid. Jesus, I said, you guys should have understood from the Scriptures that it was necessary, that it was vital, that it was imperative for the Savior to be put to death before He could return to glory. Uh, now, Jesus is not saying that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Uh, there are uh, parts that are easier to understand and there are parts that are hard to understand. But as far as is necessary for understanding salvation and life, Jesus taught, and we believe, in what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying that the Bible is a plain book filled with plain answers, and that it is clear, and that it's able to be understood. And what Jesus is saying is that they should have understood that the Savior had to suffer and die and rise just the way the Scripture said, and just from the Scriptures they already knew. Uh, even if they had considered Isaiah 53 written to predict the Messiah's ministry some 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, if they had spent any time truly considering it, they would have understood exactly what was going on around them and why it had to be that way. So listen to just this brief excerpt from Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes, Who's believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, Acquainted with grief, deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that's accomplished by his anguish, he'll be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. And who but Jesus could that be describing? I mean, looking back now, it's much easier for us to see, but even then, a text like that, having been read in synagogues for seven centuries, should have led them to understand that the Messiah had to suffer to save us from the wrath of God for our sins. Uh, but they didn't get it. Uh, or I guess I should say maybe they didn't want it. Because, you know, they loved all the verses about all the good things the Messiah would do for them. They just... They didn't want to read or accept the parts they didn't like. So they contented themselves with a superficial, self-serving understanding of God's Word. Uh, and then they wondered why their world seemed to be falling apart all around them. But you know, that happens to us all the time, doesn't it? It happens to us all the time. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else because I work with Scripture all week long, all the time, to prepare for a Bible study, 
Sunday school for the Sunday sermon. But that's not the same as getting alone with God in His Word and asking Him to speak to me and to show me what He wants from me. And that's why all of us, me included, need to not only read our Bibles regularly, but we need to spend time thinking about what it means and praying for God to help us find direction. I mean, think about it. If you're a, if you're a runner or, or an athlete, you don't just muddle through the day eating any old kind of thing you want and laying around watching uh, Facebook and, and Netflix. No, if you're a serious competitor, uh, if you're in it to win it, you take in healthy food for fuel and, and you exercise and you train and you study plays and strategies of great athletes who have won the prize before you. And we need to do that with God's Word. We need to do that with His Word if we hope to win this race of life too. But you know, that doesn't happen very much, does it? And it kind of reminded me, you guys know how my twisted brain works, it reminded me of something um, with regard to finding direction in life. And now as a, as a disclaimer, I wouldn't recommend all of its content, um, but I confess, especially when I was younger, I loved Monty Python skits. Any Monty Python fans in the room? Okay. Well, there's a particular one about the 100-meter dash for the Directionally Challenge. So if you've seen this before or if you don't like it, here's uh, 37 seconds of your life that you're never going to get back again. You ready, buddy? Now, you laugh, but that's how we approach the Christian life sometimes, isn't it? Right? Like, like I'll meet people and talk to them about coming to church or Sunday school or Bible study, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I get a daily devotional email on my computer, or, or I read from the daily bread sometimes when I get up in the morning, but those are usually the same folks who live their lives from one crisis to the next, or that feel like they can't ever catch a break. Uh, And part of the reason is they somehow conflate scraping together a few scraps and crumbs of Scripture and think it equals the cardio workout and calorie intake for them to be a real contender in the race of life. The only trouble is that every time a loud noise goes off, instead of looking to Jesus who's waiting for them at the finish line, they run in some opposite direction or find the nearest cover. Uh, But the good news is Jesus won't leave us there just like he didn't leave the men lost on the road to Emmaus. So Luke tells us, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all of Scripture the things concerning himself. What I wouldn't give to have been in on that Bible study, huh? Can you imagine? So now for the next two hours, our Lord walked Cleopas and his friend through the entire Scripture and explained all the references to the Christ. And as he did, the fire of their faith that had gone out on Golgotha came back to life again and burned with a familiar hope, the hope that Jesus was indeed the Christ. They're thinking, could it really be true? Could Jesus really be resurrected? 
And so Jesus began with Genesis 1-1, and he took him from there as they walked. And Jesus unwound the scarlet thread of the great salvation narrative that travels through every book of what we call the Old Testament. And he showed them how everything in all of Scripture was about the Christ. Everything in all of Scripture points to Jesus and his gospel. And you know, as you grow in the Spirit, you'll begin to know that too. You'll begin to actively notice it. Because if the Word of God is rightly preached to us, or if we read and study and pray uh, over the Word of God, something should happen. Something should happen. If it doesn't, if it doesn't you may want to ask yourself... Um, the question, why do I read Scripture and get nothing out of it? Uh, why, uh, why do I sit under the preaching of the Word and the, the reading of the Word and the Gospel in a fog uh, and lost in my own thoughts until the benediction comes? And that happens sometimes for folks. But remember, as I, I know I've shared with you before, uh, it's been said a genuine encounter with the real Jesus Christ in His Word is like getting hit by a dump truck. You aren't ever the same again after that you aren't ever the same again after that. And the same was true for the men in our text today. Because when they saw Jesus as the purpose and theme of all of Scripture, they felt like they had been set on fire by this man who made sense so beautifully of everything that had happened to them. And then their story continues. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he was going to go on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it, and then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? You know, remember I told you uh, at the beginning that the experience of these men was good news for us. Well, here's why. Because in this encounter on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is intentionally pointing out that before he opened their physical eyes to see him, that he had opened their hearts. And he did it through those two great pillars of our faith that he's left behind for us as the church, and that's his word and the sacraments. Uh, that's why these two men were, were kept from recognizing Jesus for hours, and I think the clue to that was back in verse 25. Remember when Jesus called them foolish? He said it was because they had been so slow of heart to believe the Scriptures. Did you see, their outward inability to recognize Jesus mirrored their inward unbelief of what the Scriptures reveal about Him. Uh, so why did Jesus reveal Himself that way? Well, it's because as the whole testimony of Scripture makes clear, it was and still is of utmost importance that these two men and all of us 21 centuries later walk by faith and not by sight. You see, Jesus knew that between his resurrection and the future establishment of his coming kingdom would be the church age. That's the era that we're living in now, right now. Uh, he knew his ascension was coming quickly. Uh, too quickly, most of his disciples would think. Uh, and that meant for these two men and uh, for all of us, and all the other witnesses to the resurrection and every generation of believers that came after them, we wouldn't have access to Christ's physical bodily presence for evidence, for instruction. They'd have to, they'd have to rely on, as Hebrews 4.12 says, his, uh, his living and active word to enlighten their path. 
They'd have to rely on the Holy Spirit to actualize his real presence at the table. Uh, And this episode we've been reading shows us God's will and intention is that in this post-resurrection and ascension world we live in, that Jesus would be seen through the inerrant record of his scriptures and in our participation in the Blessed Sacrament and through the living testimony of men and women whose hearts and eyes have been opened through the ordinary means of God's grace. Right? Working in and through us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter uh, where we find ourselves on the road of life. Which really brings me back to where we started the journey this morning with the question I ask you as to whether you've ever had the bottom drop out of your life and wondered, uh, where's God hiding when you need Him? Those, those times when we're tempted to doubt His Word and lose our faith. Those times when God ordains things to happen contrary to our expectations like happened for Cleopas and his friend. Well, you know, it turns out that the testimony of our reading today is that not being able to see him, not being able to see Jesus doesn't mean he isn't walking right there with us. Uh, in, in fact, he's been right there all the time. And then we realize it's not that, uh, that he's not watching over us, but rather that we have lost sight of him. So today, as we look past Resurrection Sunday and on toward Pentecost, let's seek to live lives centered on the Word of God, on Jesus and His gospel, trusting not in ourselves and in our own ideas about what God should be doing, but relying on the intervention of the Almighty through word and sacrament to cause us to believe in His one holy saving message and making us quick to recognize our Savior waiting around every turn, over every road, along every path, constantly moving us from stubborn confusion to complete confidence only in Him. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, I ask you today uh, to walk through this room just as you walk that road to Emmaus. I ask you, Lord, to uh, open hearts. I ask you to unblind eyes and unstop ears. Uh, And Lord, if there are any today that hear your call, that they would respond. You've promised, Lord, your sheep hear your voice. And so I trust you, Lord, that there are those who are calling to yourself. uh, And we ask you to make that real through the power of your Holy Spirit and to the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.